This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Acts chapter 12. To introduce our text today, I want to take us back several years before the book of Acts to the time when Jesus was with his disciples. There's one moment when he was with his disciples, where James and John, two brothers, came to Jesus asking him to give them something. And Jesus asked what they wanted. We want to be with you, they said, to sit on your right and your left in your glory. They wanted to reign with Jesus They wanted to be the two beside him when he reigned on his throne. It was quite the bold request, kind of undermined the other disciples. It showed that they misunderstood Jesus' mission. So Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized To which they said, we are able, we can do this. Again, they didn't understand. Jesus was talking about his suffering. He was talking about his death. And so he told them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Meaning you will suffer like I am going to suffer. He said this many times to his disciples. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15. Behold, I'm I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you and drag you before kings for my sake. Matthew 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Matthew 5. These are not the promises we'd like to pull out of our promise box each day. But in our text today, in Acts chapter 12, we see the fulfillment of these promises to one of the brothers, James. And we see another disciple, Peter, staring death in the face. And we also get to see how the church responds to this. They pray. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. And when he had realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking and when they opened they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, a different James, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. We're going we're gonna to pause there and read the final section of Acts 12 later. Because here... We have this dramatic and often humorous account of Peter's deliverance. And Luke highlights a theme. There's, there's several themes here. But the one I believe God wants to highlight for us today is how the church responds by praying. When everything appeared hopeless, when the church has no other options, when there is nowhere else to go, nothing they can do, they pray. And God miraculously answers. So I think the main point God wants us to take from the text today is don't underestimate the power of prayer. Last week, the Lord didn't want us to underestimate the church, and today, don't underestimate the power when the church prays together. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. There's three sections in our text. So we're going to have three points today. Point number one is the church is to pray earnestly. The church is to pray earnestly. Last week, we saw 
the church expanding and growing. We had this revival taking place in Antioch. And while the church is expanding and growing outside Jerusalem, Luke reminds us that there was still opposition in Jerusalem. In verse 1, he tells us that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. If you feel like there are a lot of Herods in the New Testament, there are. There are actually five different Herods mentioned. This is Herod Agrippa I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered the infants in Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. This is his grandson. And in his persecution in verse 2, it tells us that Herod kills James, the brother of John. James would be the first apostle martyred. He's the second martyr in the book of Acts after Stephen, but the first of the apostles. And a tradition from early church history sources tells us that when James was beheaded, the guard was so impressed by his faith and his testimony about Jesus that the guard himself professed faith in Christ and was executed alongside James. It seems like he took Jesus' teaching to heart to not fear those who can kill the body, but to fear God. And James is martyred. And in verses 3 and 4, Luke makes it clear that it is Herod's intention to execute Peter as well. And to make sure Peter doesn't go anywhere, he has him guarded by 16 soldiers. The details Luke gives us in this account, they're intended to make us feel the hopelessness of the situation. Sixteen soldiers guarding one man in prison. In verse 6, he tells us that he is chained to two soldiers while he sleeps. He's asleep in the cell. Sixteen soldiers, one on both sides of him. He's chained to both of those men behind multiple doors, each one guarded by soldiers with an iron gate in a prison, chained to more soldiers. It is a hopeless situation. James is dead. Peter is in prison. It's apparent that he is next. So what are they going to do? What can they possibly do to fight against Rome, against Herod, the king, against armed soldiers? It appears hopeless. The one thing they had, the only thing they had, was prayer. It was their secret weapon. It was their only weapon they had. John Stott says, it is the only power the powerless possess. They could pray. It was their secret weapon. Several years ago, Popular Mechanics did an article titled, The Air Force is Almost Ready to unveil its new secret space weapon. That got my attention. I was intrigued. The article begins, The U.S. Air Force has a top secret space weapon and is preparing to show it to the world. For months, the service has been preparing to declassify the weapon, but wants to get the timing right. The system in question has long been cloaked in the blackest of black secrecy veils, known only to a very few 
very senior U.S. government leaders like Kevin Shipp. That's what the article says. <laughs> While exactly what capability could be unveiled is unclear, insiders say that the reveal is likely to include a real-world demonstration of an active defense capability to destroy a target satellite or spacecraft. I read that, and my thought was, if Popular Mechanics is doing an article on it, it's probably not a secret anymore. And the key to a secret weapon is really the secret part, you know? Because as soon as the secret's out, it's just a weapon now. It's not a secret weapon. And it sounded like, I read the article, like they want other countries to know we have a weapon and we're not afraid to use it we have a weapon let's not keep it a secret anymore let's go public with it let let the enemy know what we got and I think that's what the Lord's encouraging us in Acts 12 we have this weapon against the enemy let's not keep it a secret anymore let's pray Let's be vocal in our prayers. Let's be public in our prayers. Let's let people know we are praying. Verse 5. So this, this is the key, I think, to our text in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Does that sound underwhelming to you? I mean, you have the forces of the Roman Empire, the king, soldiers, prison, and then you have this unimpressive community praying. Who are you betting on? If you're betting on Rome, you don't understand the power of prayer. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. The key is they were praying earnestly. There's different translations that try to capture that word earnestly, trying to describe how they were praying to God. Some, some translations say fervently. They were praying fervently. They were praying without ceasing, most strenuously, unremittingly. They, they were praying with all of their heart. It's communicating. There was, there was an intensity. There was a perseverance to their prayers. They weren't just going through the motions. This was not a formality. This was not casual. There is desperation here in their prayers. Another time the same word is used is, is when it's speaking of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. He is praying earnestly and his sweat becomes like drops of blood. That, that's, that's describing how they prayed. Do, do you feel weak? Do you feel like the odds are against you? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel powerless? Then you should pray. Prayer is the only appropriate response for many of our circumstances. And yet sadly, it isn't always the way we respond. I think the Lord wants us to pray. And to pray as a church together. It's important in our text to see they did this together. I'm sure they were praying in private. But the, the context and the emphasis here is they did this together. Prayer was by the church. It wasn't just by the apostles or the elders. It was by the church. They were praying together. And this is a central 
aspect of the New Testament church. We see this throughout the book of Acts. It was a core aspect of their meeting together. It's one of the main things they did together in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to this. In verse 12 in our text, many were gathered together and were praying. This is in the middle of the night. Peter's in prison. He's asleep. It's the middle of the night. And we find them praying together. Throughout history, so many revivals and spiritual awakenings began with God's people praying earnestly. One notable one was in New York City in the 1850s. It was a time of economic depression. Uh, there, was, there was heightened unemployment. The church had also been in decline for decades. And one man, Jeremiah Lamphere, from the Dutch Reformed Church, began a prayer meeting. It was Wednesdays at lunchtime, 12 to 1, one hour once a week. And he printed this little flyer, and this is what it said. How often shall we pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need of help, as often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I am made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit. In prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity. A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock in the rear of the North Dutch Church. Pretty simple, unimpressive flyer, I would say. He went the first Sunday at noon, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Nobody came to his prayer meeting. I think he needed a graphic designer's help to get people there. Finally, at 12.30, he heard footsteps, and six people ended up coming the first week. The next week, on Wednesday at 12 o'clock, 40 people came. They quickly decided to make it a daily lunchtime prayer meeting. And within six months, 10,000 people were gathering daily to pray for New York City. And within two years, one million converts were added to American churches because of this prayer meeting. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. I think the text is motivating us. It's calling us. Church, pray together. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. And it motivates us because point number two, we see an unbelievable answer to prayer. An unbelievable answer to prayer. And I say in my point, unbelievable, because they literally did not believe God answered their prayers in our text. They did not believe it came true. In verse 6, it's the night before his execution. So the next day, Peter is going to be executed. The church, the middle of the night, praying together. And in verse 7, an angel of the Lord 
stood next to Peter. A, a light shone in his cell. The, the scene is an angelic being entering into the prison cell and miraculously and supernaturally delivering Peter from imprisonment. And yet, as I read this scene in our text, it sounds exactly like what happens every morning as I try to get my kids up for school. I mean, it's so matter of fact. This is miraculous. It's so, it was odd. I read it. I thought, this is so matter of fact. Peter is fast asleep. He's so sound asleep that the angel has to literally hit him to wake him up from his sleep. Verse 7, he hits him upside the head. He tells him, get up quickly, check. That's what I do every morning with my kids. He tells them, get your clothes on. Don't forget your shoes. Check. Happens every day. Put a jacket on. Follow me. It's just just step by step guiding him. Get up. Put your jacket on. Put your shoes on. Come this way. You know, get up. So matter of fact. And, and the reason is he's leading Peter through every detail because Peter doesn't think it's real. It wasn't until they get outside the gate in verse 11 where, he said, where it says, Peter came to himself. He thought this was a vision. He thought it was like, like the sheet coming down from heaven. He thought he was just seeing this. But God was delivering him. And in verse 12, when Peter comes to his senses, he goes to the house of Mary. Mary is the mother of Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. She's also related to Barnabas, which is probably, she's probably his sister. It just made me think, this family is amazing. I mean, Barnabas is generous, and he sees grace everywhere. We see him earlier in Acts giving to the church. We see him taking, taking Saul to the apostles. We see him in Antioch bringing Paul to pastor that church. I mean, Mary is evidently a very prosperous woman. She's generous. She's, she's using her house to host the church for an all-night prayer meeting. And her son is, it writes one of the Gospels. That's pretty impressive, I think, you know. This is an impressive family. And in verses 13 through 16, as the church is gathered at her house, we have this whole comedic scene with Rhoda. And I imagine the early church laughing as they recounted this story. I just imagine Luke hearing the story and said, I've got to write this down so people hear this story. This is how ridiculous it is. I mean, just think about this. They're gathered in the middle of the night praying for Peter. He is about to be executed. And I'm not sure what they prayed, but, but I assume, I just assume something like, Father, we pray for Peter. Rescue him. Deliver him. Help him. Lord, save his life. And there's a knock at the door. <sighs> Father, please help Peter. Do something miraculously send an angel to rescue him. A knock at the door. Who, who is interrupting our prayers? Somebody get the door. So Rhoda, the servant, always enshrined in history in Acts 12, goes and goes to the door. Who is it? It's me. It's Peter. 
an angel rescued me from prison. She gets so excited that she forgets to even open the door and runs in and tells them Peter is at the door. And listen, they are so full of faith and confident in God answering their prayers that their response is, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. You've lost your mind, Rhoda. Like, you're you're gone crazy. Something's happened to you. You need to go to sleep, you know? And she insists, seriously, seriously, it's him. I even recognize his voice. And they continue arguing with her. Well, it must be his angel then. I mean, the faith demonstrated here is a little underwhelming when you read the text. It seems more likely to them that Peter would be dead and would come back as an angel than for God to answer their prayers and rescue him. And they're arguing back and forth. You're crazy. No, it's him. No, so it must be his angel. No, I, I really, it's Peter. He's at the door. No, it can't possibly be Peter. The whole time, Peter just keeps knocking at the door. And I, I thought somebody needs to stand up and say, listen, guys, I have a solution to your argument. Open the door. He's knocking at the door. Someone is at the door. Can we solve this argument just by opening it, you know? Hey, Siri, who's at the door? Let's solve this riddle here. And I love, I love that Luke includes these details. Honestly, it encourages my soul to read this account. Because I realize they're not so different from us. And it shows their humanity. We can elevate these biblical figures to a place where they are supernatural men and women, superheroes of the faith. And you read Acts 12 and you realize they get confused, they call each other names, they call each other crazy, they argue, they ignore the person knocking at the door. I mean, this is a description of our Thanksgiving gatherings in Acts chapter 12. If, if, you're, if your family is slightly crazy, let Acts 12 bring you hope today. You are not alone, okay? The early church was slightly crazy as well. And the the thing is, they don't believe God answered their prayer. It's encouraging that we're not the first to be slow to recognize when God answers our prayers. I think they even underestimate the power of prayer. Listen, this is what John Stott says. He says, it is ironical that the group who were praying fervently and persistently for Peter's deliverance should regard as mad the person who informed them that their prayers had been answered. It is an unbelievable answer to prayer. It is a divine prison break and they might be a little slow to come around but in verse 16 they finally open the door let's let's get a solution here and when they had opened the door they saw him and they were amazed when they finally opened the door and saw Peter they were amazed they were astonished they were slow to believe which was not so good but on the positive side They were amazed when they saw that God answered their prayer. I think this should be our response. I think verse 16 is how we should respond. We should be amazed 
when God answers our prayers. I want to be amazed when God hears us and he hears our cries. And when God comes and answers our prayers, I want to respond by being amazed. We have had so many answers to prayers. I mean, repeatedly hearing testimonies recently of God answering our prayers, praying for Bill, praying for Grace Lewis, praying for jobs for individuals, praying for healings, praying for encouragement, praying for comfort and help. There was one guy who felt like he, he, he had been suffering for a while, he had had an injury, and he just felt like he should fill out a prayer card that we have on, on the bottom of your program. So one week he filled out a prayer card, he sent it, he, he turned it in, uh, we sent it out to the prayer team, and he came back the next week, and I met him in the lobby, and he said, you'll never believe it, but the Lord answered the prayer, and I was healed. He goes, I just want to tell everybody, fill out the prayer cards, they work. I told him, it's really not the card, you know, it's not like some magic card. It's, it's, it's humbling ourselves and praying, and then being amazed when God answers our prayers. God answers prayer. And the more we pray together, the more we get to rejoice together and be aware of how often God hears our prayers. This is not something we just have to do because this is what Christians do. Our community group gets together and, and we meet and we talk about the message and we go around updates and hey guys, it's getting pretty late, you know, and snacks are getting cold. We want to get to the snacks, so we better pray because this is what Christians have to do. We got to close in prayer. That's not what we're doing. Prayer is central to our gathering. And when we do that, and when we go around and we pray for each other, and we hear what we need and the help we need and how powerless we feel, what happens is when we come back together, we should start every meeting where have you seen answers to prayer? Last time we prayed for this. Did God answer our prayer? And we get to be amazed together. We get to give God the glory. We get to rejoice. We get to, like they were in verse 16, we get to celebrate and be amazed together. Just pause. Just pause right now and think about how many prayers God has answered for you. Just think about how many prayers God has answered over the years. Be amazed. Be amazed at God. That should be our response. Let's be amazed. He has answered our prayers. And we see in our text that the church prays earnestly. God has this unbelievable answer to their prayers. And finally, third section, point number three, the unstoppable word of God. So far, we've seen the destructive power of Herod and the saving power of God. And now these two forces are going to collide. They are heading straight for each other on a collision course. Herod Verse God, who do you think is going to win? Look down with me at verse 18, the final section of our text. Acts 12, verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers 
over what had become of Peter. I, 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 yes, that's an understatement. No little disturbance. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. That was standard protocol back then. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod versus God. I think it's clear who wins this collision. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like Herod is riding a tricycle going up against a Sean Gloss monster truck. There is no competition here in these two forces. Verse 21, when Herod appears before the people, the historian Josephus adds two details to Luke's account which paint a vivid picture for us. First, uh, Josephus tells us that when he came out to give this speech to the people, Herod's robe was made of silver. So when he came out and the sun hit him, he was reflecting the sun. They said he looked like an angel. He looked divine like a god. And the, and the people began to praise him like a god. And then second thing that Josephus tells us is the king did not rebuke them or reject their flattery. He received their praise. And God will not share his glory with another. And though he may have looked like an angel, he was merely a man, and a proud man. And an actual angel struck him down. And we learn angels can be sent to rescue or angels can be sent to bring God's judgment. And so it has been for all those who oppose God and the gospel. The church has always faced opposition. Always. And whoever has opposed the word of God has come to an end, and yet the word of God remains. Listen, this is what John Stott says. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. This is the point here. God's word will always win in this battle. And we have this summary statement from Luke, from this whole account in verse 24. Look at verse 24. This is kind of his summary of the whole situation. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It is a complete 
reversal of the church's situation. It begins with Herod on a rampage and the church in hiding. And by the end, Herod himself is struck down and now the word of God is on a rampage. Voltaire will we'll close with this. Voltaire, the, the famous 18th century French philosopher, he had once written and predicted that because of the Enlightenment, because of his writing, that the church would be destroyed, that the people would not need the church anymore, and that people within 50 years would forget who Jesus even is. And he wrote this from his house. And I can tell you this, 50 years later, Voltaire was no more. He was dead. And the house that he used to write that prediction was bought by the Geneva Bible Society. And they used his house to print thousands upon thousands of Bibles, God's Word. And so you will find this to be true over and over and over throughout church history. It's why I love studying church history. I promise you, no matter how dark, no matter who rampages against God's word today, God's word will be triumphant. And so how do we respond? Let's have confidence in God's word. Let's have confidence that, that his church and his mission will go forth. And when things are dark, when things seem hopeless, when we feel powerless, when we're not sure how the word of God is going to triumph against culture and against those who oppose it, Acts 12 would tell us, let's pray. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thanks for encouragement from your word that we can trust in you today, that we can put our hope in you, that you will be successful in your mission. And I pray for everybody here this morning, I pray that they would leave this morning with their faith built and a confidence in your word, a confidence that when they pray to you, God, you hear them and you will answer their prayers. So fill us with faith today. Fill us with hope. Give us, give us faith for our family members. Give us faith for those who don't know you. Give us faith for those we've been praying for and asking you to save them, Lord. I pray that we would have encouragement this morning not to give up, but to persevere in our prayers and to have confidence in your mission and your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-694. 4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.